0: What do hot energy markets mean for you? Hello, and welcome to another podcast by BNP Paribas Wealth Management. Today, we will spotlight the energy markets. We will explore why prices are super high and discuss the challenges of climate change targets. My name is Charlotte de Capuisson. Now, anyone who owns a car cannot escape the ugly truth that the price at the pump has soared in recent weeks. At the time of recording this podcast, Brent crude oil was around $110 a barrel, and gas prices too have hit record highs. So the big question is, can we pin these rises on the conflict, or are there more fundamental reasons? Edmund Shing, Global Chief Investment Officer at BNP Bio Wealth Management, joins me today to give his views on the topic. Hello, Edmund.
1: Hello there, Charlotte.
0: So Edmund, would you start by summarising the current situation in energy markets?
1: Well... They're obviously very tight, very expensive. They are a clear motor behind the very high inflation rates we see across the world at the moment. But as to whether or not the current conflict is the sole driver of very high energy prices, the answer is no. It, they are clearly a contributor, but both oil and gas prices had been rising and were actually high well before this conflict started. So this trend. Up in energy prices has been going on for quite a number of months. And this is simply due to the fact that demand has increased globally, partly because of the strength of the global economy and the fact that we've been exiting lockdowns and therefore starting to travel more on the one hand. And on the other hand, the ability of oil-producing nations such as the OPEC Plus group of nations to supply more oil has been relatively constrained. So it comes always back to a question of supply and demand. Demand has been growing pretty robustly up until recently, and supply has struggled to keep up. It's as simple as that.
0: When we think about previous oil price spikes, i.e. during the 1970s, 1990 and 2008, we recall that a global recession ensued. So do you think a recession is looming ahead?
1: The risk of global recession has clearly risen sharply over the last few weeks because of the damage to consumer confidence on the one hand from worries and uncertainties over what the conflict means for economic growth. And secondly, of course, the effect on economic growth from these very high oil and gas prices because very high energy prices act like a global tax on the economy, transferring wealth from countries that import and consume energy to those countries that produce it. So the beneficiaries today obviously have been, as I said, the OPEC plus nations, for instance, in the Middle East. And the rest of us are paying the cost by a higher tax, which inevitably means that we tend to consume less of everything else because it's an essential cost. Heating and travel tend to be relatively inelastic and essential cost. And so we tend to adapt as households by consuming less elsewhere. And that has a negative effect on economic growth. So yes, the risk of recession has certainly increased. It's by no means certain. Because what causes a recession and caused a recession in the past was not just the fact that oil and gas prices were very high, but stayed very high for some considerable time, at least three to six months. So that's what we need to watch for. If oil and gas prices stay at their current levels for at least the next three to six months, then yes, we could be looking at an economic recession thereafter. But that is by no means certain today.
0: Edmund, every day we hear of another round of sanctions against Russia. But what a lot of folk don't realise is that Europe's sanctions do not include energy, i.e. oil, gas, coal, and even wood. Russia exports 4.5 million barrels per day of crude oil to Europe and the US. There is no other substitute for our economies in the short term. Russia needs to export as much as Europe needs to import. But if we were to strip Russia out of the equation, would there be a lack of global supply of oil?
1: Yes, and for Europe, even worse, a massive shortfall in natural gas supply. So the impact is much greater on Europe than on other economies, because the US, remember, is actually today the largest producer of oil in the world. So they are largely self-sufficient, whereas in Europe, we certainly are not, particularly in terms of gas. We've become over-reliant strategically on relatively cheap gas imports from Russia, which are certainly not cheap today, but in the past have been cheap, And I think we have, as Europe, underinvested in our own energy production and energy infrastructure. Yes, we're moving to renewables, but clearly it has not been quick enough. And I think we've compounded this issue by trying to phase out in many countries a nuclear power generation of electricity, which has left us even more reliant as a result on gas to generate electricity.
0: And if we focus on gas a little bit more, Shell, a British energy giant, forecasts a gap in global supply and demand by the middle of this year. Europe has underinvested in gas infrastructure. Again, Russia is a major exporter of gas to Europe. Do you think we could cope without Russia supplies and ultimately wean ourselves off gas altogether?
1: That's sort of a difficult question. The obvious answer for certain countries is no, because if you take Western countries such as Germany or Austria, or even some of the Central European countries like Poland, the vast majority of their gas supply comes directly from Russia. So it'd be very difficult for them to substitute that with anywhere else, because simply there just isn't enough supply, either by liquefied natural gas from the US or from Qatar or from anywhere else. Just, there just isn't the supply available. There aren't the pipelines in place to do that on the scale necessary for these countries. However, bear in mind that seasonally speaking, our gas demand in Europe will go down simply because the weather is improving. We are exiting winter. We are entering springtime and temperatures rise. Our heating demand therefore falls and the bulk of the gas demand actually comes from heating. So some of that gas demand should fall and that should start to ease the pressures, other things being equal. But certainly in the short term, we cannot do completely without Russian gas, which is exactly why Europe has not put sanctions on imports of gas and oil from Russia for that reason, because we are just as dependent as they are, they need to export what we absolutely need to import. Long term, clearly, the European Union nations are getting together in Versailles in the very near term and are going to certainly agree to accelerate investment in renewable energy, solar, wind, hydro, and other, in order to, in the long term, replace our reliance on Russian gas for electricity generation. But that is going to take a number of years. That will not be a solution tomorrow.
0: That leads to another relevant point Within the European Union, an important proposal to guarantee the region's energy independence was due to be presented at the beginning of March. But needless to say, this was postponed due to the conflict in Eastern Europe. Edmund, do you think countries would struggle to meet their climate change targets if politicians decided to to remove the bloc's dependence on Russian energy?
1: Yes, there is a clear tension between... The three goals that the European Union have in terms of energy, which is, of course, climate change, as in moving towards a low or zero carbon economy, number one. Number two, cost, keeping the economic cost down to something that is affordable for companies and for households. And thirdly, security. Again, this idea of energy independence within the European Union. Now, clearly, the third one had been forgotten in favour of the first two points. Now, the third point has become so much more important. There is a risk that one of the other two will have to give way. Either it's going to cost us a lot of money to put in place the energy infrastructure necessary, or we're going to have to compromise on our low or zero carbon objectives. So I I think that is a risk. But personally, I do think that we will probably compromise at least as much on the cost, i.e. we will have to put up with the fact that energy costs in general will be higher for longer in Europe because of the need to invest in this alternative energy production and infrastructure going forwards.
0: What are your favourite investment solutions in the energy space today?
1: Well, there are many. I think if we look firstly at the US, there are certainly two areas I like. One area which is U.S. oil exploration and production, predominantly uh, focused on, for instance, onshore shale oil production and gas production, because we expect the U.S. to produce 900,000 more barrels of oil per day between now and the next 6 to 12 months. So you're going to see a lot more production and, again, a lot of profitability given the very high WTI prices in the US, West Texas prices, which are still close to $110 a barrel. So extremely profitable, given that the break-even cost for these shale producers may be as low today as $50 a barrel. Once you take into account the revenues, they can also generate from shale gas, which they tend to produce at the same time. Secondly, US energy infrastructure pipelines that carry this oil and gas to from the Uh, shale fields in Texas to where they're needed, or to ports to be shipped as, for instance, liquefied natural gas or crude exports. And those are master limited partnerships, which you can buy in the form of funds or ETFs. In Europe, I would say one area I really like is renewable energy infrastructure, because again, not just producing renewable energy, but more importantly, storing it, because we still will need electricity when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. We therefore need solutions such as large-scale industrial batteries or other forms of electricity storage, such as via gravity solutions or via, for instance, hydroelectric dams, where you pump the water up the hill using surplus electricity when you have it. And when you need it, you allow the water to flow back downhill and drive turbines to generate the electricity. So using water as an enormous natural battery. These types of renewable energy infrastructure funds exist, can be invested in, in fund or ETF format, and typically offer a yield around 5 or even 6% sometimes. That's a very attractive yield at a time when cash and bond deals are so low. So those are the three solutions that come to mind immediately that I would favor today.
0: Edmund Shing, thank you very much. And to our audience, thank you very much for listening to this podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe to our weekly podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Spotify, or any other podcast provider by searching for BNP Paribas Wealth.